0: Hello and welcome to the Biblically Sound Woman podcast where we are gospel-driven and scripture-focused. I am your host, Ayana Mathis, and I am so excited that you're joining us today for another episode on the show. All right, all right, all right. So I am not gonna hop on here and get into a new episode without uh, addressing some huge elephants in the room. Guys, ladies, it has been over a year since a girl has recorded anyone's podcast episode. And to be honest, life was happening. Like, for real, for real. I have gotten married. (laughs) Um, I've been married now a month and some change. Um, That's why my last name is now Mathis instead of Thomas. Um, So yeah, a lot has been going on. Um, And we had a wedding to plan and all of that. And so I am now in a place where I am not like living out of someone else's house until we got married, and I now have my own space um, and just the wherewithal to do what I love to do, and that is talking to you ladies about all things theology, culture, uh, gospel, Bible, and everyday Christian living. So without further ado-do-do, we're going to get into today's episode. Um, something that we're going to talk about today, which I'm super excited about, is why context matters um, and why that's important for um, us as women, us as believers. But before we get into that, we're going to go ahead and jump into our biblically sound resource for today's episode. Whitney Woolard is a wife, Bible teacher, professor, and writer who teaches women how to engage with God's Word. She holds a BA from Moody Bible Institute in Biblical Studies and a Master's of Arts in Biblical and Theological Studies from Western Seminary. And she is literally one of my favorite Bible teachers. I recently read an article she wrote that was published originally on NineMarks.org entitled, Delighting in Authority How to Create a Culture of Happy Complementarians. It was amazing, well written, and she's made a lot of great points worthy of our intention. And a noteworthy quote from her article was, It's time for the church to create space in its local assemblies for strong females who happily affirm authority. For example, male headship and eldership, while advocating for more opportunities for women to flourish according to their gifts, and qualification. Imagine how the gospel could be displayed to the watching world if churches were filled with biblically minded women who embraced God-ordained authority as a blessing rather than a burden. This countercultural impulse would offer continual opportunities to share the gospel with a world that's desperate for truth. If you like check it out. I put a link in the show notes to this amazing article and as well as Whitney's website where she has more content that you can access. So as I stated earlier in today's episode, we are going to be talking about context and why it matters. Now if we look at the definition of context, the context definition is the circumstances that form the setting for an event statement or idea and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. Another definition of context is the parts of something written or spoken that immediately precede and follow a word or passage and clarify its meaning. So when we talk about context and why it matters, one of the first reasons why context matters, and this is in line with the definition that I just read, is that it is impossible to truly understand the full and intended meaning of an author of anything if context is not pursued. We can literally turn on our televisions today, we can hop on social media, we can watch YouTube, we can do whatever, and if we pull out a soundbite, or if a soundbite of something is presented to us, or if a part of, um, um, maybe like a book is read to us, we're not going to gain the whole context necessarily always of what was said. Um, And if we're not pursuing to understand what someone meant by what they stated or by what they wrote or by, by what they thought, that we can end up misconstruing what the intention and what the heart and what the idea ultimately was behind what was stated. And so an example of this would be, the text threads we have in our phones and send back and forth to our friends, loved ones, etc. So if I pulled up a text message thread between, I don't know, um, a co-worker of mine and I, and we are talking about trading shifts with one another, and they say, can you come in on Tuesday, right? And someone else has no idea who this person is or how I know them, and they see... Let's say they pick up my phone and they see, hey, can you come in on Tuesday? They're not going to know what Tuesday is about, why it's significant, why they need me to come in on Tuesday. And they probably wouldn't even know who it was that originally said that to me. And so what's important is that in order to understand what that coworker that I know that's my coworker meant, we must gain context. So if we're reading something, we can't just go to something and say, hey, it says this right here, then it must mean this. We have to do some digging, we have to do some searching and try to find out what was it that this person or author or theologian or God or whoever, friend, was trying to communicate before I draw an interpretation of what was said. Second reason why context matters Is that in biblical terms, we are not the first audience that scripture was written to. Therefore, we need to understand the historical and cultural setting of the original audience. We can't, nor would we open up a book written as a historical narrative of, let's say, World War II, and start inserting ourselves into it. We wouldn't understand what happened during the time, what certain uses of language meant, etc. There's something so important about constantly setting before us the reality that we are not the first people to read the Bible. We are not the first audience to receive the contents of Scripture. And this is something that we have to keep in mind every time we go to our Bibles. Anytime someone's quoting Scripture, anytime anytime someone's teaching a text to us, whether it be at a conference, or at a podcast, or on social media, or in a church, where they're proclaiming things about God's Word, that may or may not be accurately presented in light of its context. Because then we start muddying the waters and we start getting further and further and further away from what the original author of that content meant and also what the God of that person, the God we all serve, was trying to communicate through that individual that would not only impact their direct first immediate audience, but also those in generations to come. The third way that context matters, and the third reason why context matters, is that scripture becomes objective to the hearer and or reader's own interpretation instead of the methods and tools that are in place to rightly understand what God intended to be communicated through the human author. We can easily say, that God told me to do or believe a certain thing if the context of scripture is disregarded. Many a false theological position and doctrine has been formed off of this approach alone. I know y'all have heard it before. God told me to do this. God told me, well, God said this or God said that. We live in a we live in a culture and in a time where people are, are, are adopting this postmodern view of trying to make sense of things based off of their own experience and based off of their own knowledge. And so what I mean by that is when you take a postmodern approach to basically anything, nothing can really have a solid position. You can't really have a solid position on much of anything because everything's so fluid. Oh, it can go this way, or it could mean this, or it could mean that, or it could go that way. When we are approaching God's Word, we have to remember that God is the author of Scripture, period. No matter who wrote and penned it by hand, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. The Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of Scripture, This was not something that was done independent of God's knowledge or God's oversight. And so when we talk about postmodernism and looking at the fluidity that can be truth, right? Truth doesn't have such a concrete uh, holding or stance or footing when anyone can determine the threshold for truth and how truth is approached, how it's measured, and the like. And so what we want to be careful of as hearers and readers of the word is not to take an approach that makes God into someone that he's not. Because when God becomes this fluid person who can, who can accept any and everything and he has no standards or he has no boundaries or he has no laws or he has no commandments or he has no methods or tools that are in place to approach his word with, then anyone can literally get up on a stage and say, God told me to do this, even if it's in direct opposition to his word. And namely, because we're talking about context specifically, it doesn't matter how and when something happened if the scriptures and interpreting them can be fluid and subjective to our own personal interpretation or our own personal feelings about the text. We want to make sure that we are giving back to God what he gave to us. And that is a right handling of his word. God did not give his word to us falsely. He did not give it to us incomplete. He did not give it to us, you know, just throw it at us. He gave it to us complete, concise, and he has given us his spirit to be able to understand what it means, what it says, and how it applies to our lives daily. But we want to make sure that we're not approaching it in a way that's just subjective, that, you know what, whatever says goes, however you feel about it, that's what it is. The fourth reason that context matters is because one point or verse we highlight in a text is not always the main focus of the entire book. We must interpret scripture with scripture, not take one part and elevate it over everything else that is said. This is just like if we applied this approach to our conversations we have with one another. We wouldn't want anyone to take one thing that we said and base their whole perception or understanding of us on that one thing. Therefore, we need to be mindful not to do this when we approach God's word. Paul may say one thing in one chapter of Ephesians and another in the book of Romans, but instead of pitting his words against each other, we must be understood that a thorough and comprehensive look at all that he has communicated is important and not just one line. God forbid that anyone took anything that I have ever said in my life and used that one thing to build a whole belief system about Ayanna Mathis. If that was done, there wouldn't be any generosity, there wouldn't be any grace, there wouldn't be any type of um you know, due diligence taken to who I am as a person because I am not just one sentence I say out of my mouth. There is so much more that uh, makes up me as a person. I am made up of more than just one sentence or one word. You can't use one word to define a person, right? And that's why when we look at God's character and his attributes, there isn't one word that we can just absolutely say, this is just who God is all in all through and through. God is just as much as loving as he is wrathful. God is just as much as wrathful as he is gracious. God is just as much as merciful as he is gracious. All of his attributes are combined and they they flow in and out of one another and they are consistently always being exercised at the same time. And so keeping that in mind, we must make sure that when we're talking about God's word and we're looking at scriptures, we're not taking one scripture and using that to build a whole doctrinal position that now becomes something we teach to people online and we teach to people in our local churches and we allow others to teach to us. It's not just about the people who teach things to you. It's also about the way that you handle the word and the way that you allow yourself to receive the word. Because when we give voices to people and we constantly lend our ears to people who like to mince words of God and pick which ones are going to teach you and pick which ways they're going to sh- show you and present it to you, that's a great concern. You don't have to subject yourself to those things. You can say, look, I am a biblically sound woman. I know how to approach God's word. I know that that is the right way to do it, and I'm not going to I'm not going to set myself under teaching that does not honor the context. I'm not going to set myself under teaching no matter how beautiful you are, no matter how good you look, no matter how cute your kids are, no matter how, you know, good you and your husband look, no matter how many followers you have, no matter how large your church or ministry is, if you cannot keep God's word in its proper context. If you cannot keep from habitually taking verses and points to fit your talking points instead of doing the proper work to make sure God's word is being accurately presented, I can't get with it, I can't jive with it, I can't sit under it because it's so much bigger than what we often think it is. The fifth way and reason why context matters is that the ways that we approach scripture today will have an effect on later generations to come a popular thing we say nowadays is you know we want to make sure that we understand that generations behind us are depending on our obedience and they're depending on us to get things right and and someone's waiting on your obedience and while I don't believe, um, you know, holistically, we can say that as like, a hey, everything's banking on your back and getting it right. No, I think everything is banking on the back of Jesus and him having gotten it right and we just being faithful and proclaiming his message. There is some truth to that statement. And that is the generations that come behind us, the kids and the teenagers and the adults that will later be in the times after we are long and gone, they are going to read books that we wrote. They're going to hear digital content we made. They're going to read blog posts that got published on the internet. They're going to view videos of times and history that happen now. And so right now, where we are right now, this very moment, modeling for the upcoming generations how God's word should be handled is a dire necessity they are going to look to us they are going to look to how we did things and either a they're going to by god's grace say no that wasn't right and do it the right way or they're going to look at the way that we did things and follow in our footsteps and further perpetuate issues that have been going on for some time if you recall in the old testament um, when the first generation of israelites could not make it um, into the promised land and god was like look These people, this generation, they have done wicked things. I've had to now come and bring up and raise up a new generation of people. Moses had to go back and in the book of Deuteronomy, give the second law, which was a retelling by Moses of the teachings and events of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And what he had to do was let the newbies to the tribe know look. Your fathers, your ancestors failed in this way, but I'm going to give you the law again so you know what is what is what what God is expecting of you what he's commanding you to do what he's not commanding you to do what he's calling you to pursue what he's not calling you to pursue and so with this in mind as Moses is expositing God's law to the new generation of Israelites they're getting some context they're getting some understanding of what happened before they arrived on the scene and what God is doing in them now and what he's expecting out of them because they cannot afford to do what Their forefathers and mothers did, and get it wrong again. God has given a second chance. He's continued His covenant with these people, and He is laying down the law in what it means and how it's supposed to be followed. And so, when we look at how we approach Scripture today, we have to think in those terms that we are responsible for how those behind us understand the God of the Bible, the books that are being written. The digital content being created and the like and how we handle the scriptures will leave an example, both good and bad for those new in the faith behind us to follow. And we wanna show them the right way. We wanna show them that you need to be patient in your Bible reading. Don't rush so quick to application when you haven't sat long with the text enough. Wrestle with the text. There will be tension in your reading. Don't feel like you got it after sitting down for five minutes and you read a passage. I know there are people out there that do that. I know that there are people out there who teach you this way. I know that there are people out there who have made themselves famous in ministry because all they had to do was sit down in a quiet time for 15 minutes. God, the Holy Spirit gave them a word and now they feel compelled to share it with everyone else even if it was wrong and so generations behind us listen to things like this listen to the voices of people who will get it right and who care about your soul and who care about bible literacy not just impacting generations today but impacting those who will come after us we are passing off a torch we are passing off a baton this is a A long, never-ending relay race where we're constantly passing things off to the generations after us. And we want to make sure what we're passing off to them will sustain them. Bad practices and bad approaches to scripture and handling it will not sustain them. If anything, it will drive them further away from God and from his intention and plan and model for his people and the knowledge of what that does and brings to our souls and our well-being and health in Christ. The next reason why context matters, and this is number six, is that God's representation is on the line. How God has revealed himself to mankind matters. The things he has given us to focus on, the instructions, the ways he feels about sin, what he is and has not promised to do, is all banking on how he displays and reveals himself to us. And if we don't stay close to the context of scripture, we will re- misrepresent God to others and fail to display his beauty. One of the big things about this is if you go to, if, if you go to another country, for example, that doesn't have um, Walmarts and Targets, right? Most of us know what Walmart and Target is. If you go to another country and they've never heard of, let's say a, a remote country where there's like, you know, little to no internet. Um, everyone pretty much just talks to each other. There's very few people living there. And you try to explain to them, you know, what um, Walmart and or Target carries in their stores and what it does and what's the purpose of it. If you told someone that the purpose of Target or what Target sells, they're just an electronics store. You know, they sell electronics. You can buy electronics from there. This is how they work. This is what you do with do with them. It's partly true that Target and Walmart sell electronics, but that's not only what they sell. They also sell food, and produce, and clothing, and tires, and automotive care things, and plants, and makeup, and household products, and appliances, and so many other things other than just electronics. But if the way that you represent Target Inn or Walmart to that person living in a remote area, then they will come to believe that you know, never having seen one, never having touched one, never having been in one, that if I were to ever go to this, I could get this thing from this. Granted now, they have no knowledge about all the other things that are in a Target and Walmart, but they know that they sell electronics or it's an electronic store. The same thing literally goes for God. If we represent God to people in parts and not his whole person, We will fail to represent him rightly. His identity is on the line. Not that we could destroy the identity of God. We're not that powerful. We are fallible human beings. Uh, But we can mar the image of God in the way we represent it to others because of the way that we talk about God. And we will only talk about God rightly if we know him rightly in his word. We will only feel about God rightly if we know who he has revealed himself to be in his word. We will only act accordingly and practice right living in light of what God has revealed about himself if we actually know what he has revealed about himself in his word. Do you see the pattern there? We can't just say, well, you know what? God is this because in this chapter of this verse, he said this, no, the Bible is not meant to be taught nor read in parts. It is one cohesive story that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. God is communicating something here. He is drawing out and unfolding a story that matters and it matters how it's told. The story of David and Bathsheba is all about modesty and not what happens when men who are called by God in positions of power stray away from his laws and commandments, then our theology of women will be affected. We will teach that. Oh, women are responsible for the fall of men. Men, Women are responsible for, you know, covering up all the time so that they don't cause men to stumble or lust. When in all actuality, that story has absolutely nothing to do with modesty nor indecent exposure. Bathsheba was actually following the commandments that God had laid out in Leviticus. I want to say it's chapter 28. Uh, 18 or 19 or 28, one of those, or 21. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But um, that she was obeying the laws and commandments of God and purifying herself after her menstrual cycle. And that was something God instituted long before David became king. And you know what's so interesting? David, as a king, God specifically said that if, if Israel desires kings for themselves, They must know and keep the law and commandments. They must carry a copy of it on their person. They must know it through and through. So what this story is highlighting is not a woman who was indecently exposed and was being a, um, a lust magnet and trying to tempt David, but rather a man who was called by God to this position of leadership, who did not stay close to obeying God's word then now finds himself in a pickle because he's taken this woman who was another man's wife for himself. And now she gets pregnant and now you got to cover up your sin. And so if we don't teach God correctly, if we don't keep things in their proper context, if we don't say exactly what the text says, but instead use our own human wisdom to try to explain God away or focus on certain things because that's what we feel like doing, This will affect and impact what we believe about God and his care for women and how others see him rightly or wrongly. The last and final reason why context matters is that we do not get to revise the Bible. Our duty as believers is to unearth what is there. Like an archaeologist, we are tasked with searching for what has already been given to us for our instruction, not to make up things that don't exist. It matters that we can say exactly what the text says. It matters that we don't go beyond what boundaries God has placed. It matters that we know God's word so that we don't claim that he told us things that aren't actually even in line with his word. It matters that context allows us to see how and what God is consistently communicating throughout the entire narrative of redemption. How this all plays out matters so much to God He called men to write it down and record it, preserving it for our knowledge, wisdom, instruction, and worship today. This is all about keeping God's word pure, keeping it the way in which God gave it to us. If if he gave this word to us, it is not for us to take our little magic markers and cute pencil sets and rewrite it. We don't have the authority nor power to do that. God breathed this word out. That is the only thing that we can claim that is God breathed. God breathed this word out. And you know what happens anytime God breathed the word out? It stuck. There was no erasing it. There was no revising it. When God says something, he means it. When God writes something, he's not going to go back and change it because that would go against his nature. He does not go back and revise what he has already declared to be truth. Y'all, we are living in an age where literally you can go to many churches today. You can sit through a sermon and someone somewhere will tell someone in their congregation or tell a group of people that God told me to say this and it's nowhere to be found in scripture. And matter of factly, It can even be in direct opposition to what God has said in his word. And they wouldn't know because they didn't read it. And I don't say this to be, you know, mean or unfair or unloving or ungracious. But the reality is there is an attack and has been since the beginning of time in the garden on keeping God's word in context. The The whole human race fell because of it. We see that. Eve misquoted God she took things that God said out of context and so did Satan when Satan was tempting Jesus on the mountain and he quoted scripture to Jesus he took it out of context anytime context is not properly displayed and held and exercised and pursued we will get the very things that we get nowadays people can literally say whatever they want about God. They can say whatever they want about the Bible. And there can be no absolute truth if that is how we approach the matters concerning God. This is such a burden on my heart. Um, I see this so much. And I want to encourage you ladies to don't, don't, don't fall for it. I mean, like, Don't don't fall for the okie doke. God has given you the ability to know him. He's given you the ability to understand his word. He's given you the ability to keep things in their proper context. And it's so simple. It's just reading what you see. A lot of times we're so focused on trying to get to an interpretation that we're not even reading what's there. God said, let there be light. Oh, well, God said, let there be light because it was a manifestation of this and that. No, like God just said, let there be light. We don't have to get super spooky deep or anything like that. God said, let there be light. That's what he said. Okay, all right. So what do we do with that? We understand that when God says something, it happens and that he only can speak things that don't exist and they come into existence. Not us, not any of those other things. We wanna make sure that we're holding closely to God's word and keeping it the way that he declared and exhibited to us. Just briefly at the end of this episode, I just wanna kind of follow up with talking about the three types of contexts that we will encounter in God's word. Now, um, I drew these principles and knowledge from a training I was invited to last year um, with Simeon Trust. They are an awesome organization. Um, They equip pastors and Bible teachers um, on how to study God's Word, how to read God's Word, and how to teach God's Word in a faithful way. Um, If you go on their website, which I'll also link down in the show notes, they have courses that are literally super cheap for you to take that will educate you on how to do the very things that I am talking about Um, If you guys are interested, um, let me know, um, but I would be more than happy to do an episode um, talking about how we do the work of context, how, how context works, how we make that happen, how we faithfully do that, and some tools and resources that may be helpful to you all. But three types of context that exist. There are three that I'm going to highlight today. Um, There are many more, but I think specifically in following the Simeon Trust model, these three I think are, are very helpful for especially beginning people. But you have literary context, historical context, and biblical context. Now let's talk about the first one. Literary context is gained by engaging with the words around the text. And this can be accomplished by reading passages that are immediately surrounding the text, like chapters and verses before and after. So, for example, I gave the uh, example of um, the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, A lot of times when we read the text, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, Bathsheba tempted David. Um, She was on top of a roof. And, you know, she was bathing on a roof. And that's often how the story gets told. But in in a literary contextualized sense, when we read the text, we see that it wasn't Bathsheba who was on the roof. It was David. And David was looking upon her as she was doing and performing the ceremonial cleansing. If you read in any Bible, it will give you, with references, cross-references, it will give you a reference to Leviticus where it is explaining the rites and rituals for those who had bodily discharges that were un- considered unclean in light of God's laws and commandments. Um, and they were both equally given for men and women. And that specific cross-reference is placed with that text in Second Samuel chapters 11 through 12 because that is what Bathsheba was doing. And so when we read the passage ar- immediately around the text, we even see that Oftentimes when people teach a text or preach the text, it's like it's Bathsheba's fault and the blame and and, and things get placed on her. But the way that the story is told and even the point in Psalm 51 where David is uh, confronted by the prophet Nathan, it's all about his sin. You never not once see Bathsheba being highlighted as the sinful party in this equation. And so again, we gain things like this from looking at the literary context. And I'm gonna be honest with y'all, when I first read that story, I did not take that, what I took now just from it, I did not take that then. My view of Bible and all of that was just warped. And it wasn't until I was given tools like these to be able to say, whoa, these are safeguards to make sure I'm not saying something that the text doesn't even say because it tells us what is happening. And we also take an account when we're reading Old Testament literature, that there is some uh, historical narrative. We're reading accounts of what happened. And so instead of looking for principles about, you know, what to and to not to do immediately, we should be looking at what is this author trying to communicate about what happened? They're reporting something to me. They're telling me what happened and I need to focus in on what's happening. So then when it comes time to draw the principles and application from it, I can do it rightly. The next type of context is historical. Historical context is gained by engaging with the world around the text. This can be accomplished by understanding the historical situation or circumstances that the first audience experienced at the time in which the book was written. This can also be accomplished by familiarizing ourselves with the words surrounding the text within the book it's housed in, or even other books that may help add more understanding. For example, pairing 1st and 2nd Samuel together, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Now, when we're talking about historical context, something we wanna make sure we're keeping in mind is that as a woman living in 2019, there are certain things that I have experienced, there are certain things I have read, there are certain things that I've watched on the news just by way and virtue of living in this age. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, so there are gonna be things specific to my particular context in which I live that I may have knowledge about that others that don't live in my immediate area might not have knowledge about. For example, there was a time when I lived here that the water in Decatur, or I think in DeKalb County, DeKalb County, it was like off, like the water was off, and people were affected by that. They had to wait for the water to get turned on due to something going on with it. But because I live in this immediate context, and I am a primary um audience of what is going on, there are going to be certain things that a news reporter might say on the news that I'm going to understand that someone who lives. I don't know, a hundred or five hundred or two states miles away might not understand because they don't live in this media context. And so when we're talking about engaging with the world around the text, we want to make sure that as we are reading these Bible passages, that we are engaging with the people in the text, the audience of the text, and the world that the audience of the text lived in. And so a lot of times when we're talking about interpretation, we come from a westernized thinking, a westernized approach to scripture, which often places us in places of privilege over an audience that was very, you know, they, they weren't in places like we were. They didn't have internet. They didn't have the convenience of being able to call up a family member on the phone and talk to them or exchange information. They couldn't send letters back and forth. Most of the time, if you had a word to send to someone, you had to go yourself, send a group of people or take a, an arduous trek and journey to go do that. And so when we're talking historical context and and, and interacting and engaging with the world around the text, we literally have to do more work than just reading a Bible verse to interpret it correctly and get the context correctly because we're we're so far removed from it. I mean, where it happened and how it happened and why it happened and what was being said and the climate and the tension and the relationships that were going on that time do matter in how we interpret and gain context. And lastly, the third uh, type of context is biblical. Biblical context is gained by engaging with actual literary and or historical connections between books. And a great example of this is a connection we see that I mentioned earlier of biblical context being shared between 2 Samuel 11 through 12, chapters 11 through 12 and Psalm 51 in relation to the story of David and Bathsheba. Here, we have two completely different books sharing historical connections. And in the book of Psalm, the whole book isn't about David, all right? And so we see in chapter 51, that it's just like, it's picking up where chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel left off. And so when we're gaining that biblical context, we're seeing how scripture interprets scripture, how we see how it all fits together. If we're reading Leviticus, and then we come across Hebrews in our New Testament readings, we're gonna be like, whoa, I see how much these parallel and how much content is understood in Hebrews when I understand Leviticus. I see how I can understand and better understand the Gospels when I'm understanding these different perspectives of the ones who are writing these Gospels and what their audiences were and what their culture was like and etc. They're not all going to say the same thing and that's okay because it's coming from the vantage point of four different individuals. So those are just three ways um, and types of contexts that we can employ in our study and utilize in our methodology when we're studying the, the scriptures. We want to make sure that we are engaging, again, with the literary context and gaining that by engaging with the words around the text. And that means looking at the chapters and verses before and after, um, the historical context by engaging with the world around the text, what's happening with the people, where do they live, what's their climate like, What you know? what's going on in their lives. And biblical context, um, and, and we gain this by engaging with actual literary and or historical connections, we see of biblical context being shared between different books. And so again, something like Hebrews and Leviticus, or um, even Genesis and Exodus. I mean, we see where Israel starts and how it all gets its its, its traction and all of that. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because again, when uh, we talk about biblical theology, right? That there is, a, there is a, a, a story that's being unfolded throughout all of scripture. And we want to gain how all of these books fit together in bringing out what God is bringing out through each of these books. So now it's Q&A time. Every episode, it is my goal to answer a question from listeners on what they want to know concerning theology, the Bible, culture, everyday life, you name it. So this episode's question comes from a listener who asked, did you attend seminary? Thoughts on seminary. Um, So to answer the question, I did not attend seminary. Um, In college, I went to the University of Florida. I did not finish. But while I was there, I started out in the journalism program. And then I felt a call from God to move on to the religious studies department. So I changed my major and I took um, different religious studies courses before I actually left the university. Um, I took Intro to Islam, I took Religion and Film, I took new Test- uh, a New Testament course, um, I took courses related to um, just kind of the theology concerning slavery and Christianity and the black experience in religion and all that kind of stuff. And so after um, I left college, which I, again, I didn't finish, but after I left, I um, I taught in different ways, and the Lord, you know, dismantled my whole theological system because it was trash, and so I I attended what I would call a portable seminary, and that is I would go to Lifeway um, and get my, my books. I look up books online from trusted resources um, and recommended resources to me. I got my Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Um, I would research a ton online, um, watch different lectures. Um, that There's so many free ones online, y'all. Um, got hip to the Gospel Coalition, took advantage of their resources. I read a ton. I, I would say the most of my education theologically has come from the Bible. And I don't just say that to say that, but literally it was to the point where where I was in my life at that point, I was like, look, if I'm going to teach anything or learn anything about God, I want to know where book chapter verses says this. Because I've heard so many people teaching me so many different things. I grew up hearing this. I grew up hearing that. I heard this down the street. I heard this across the way. And I don't even really know if it's true. And so I had to take to the scriptures to learn um, what I know. And so it was a culmination of things. It was, um, or a combination of things. It was Bible reading, like intense Bible reading, studying different um, systematic theology. Um, and systematic theology is just simply the systems of theology, how we how we group things in different categories to um, kind of understand them from a systematic perspective. So, you know, what is doctrine? What is the church? Who is God? What is this? What is that? Um, and so... Yeah, I didn't go to a formal seminary, but I did uh, do portable seminary, and I still do portable seminary. And then I also have been um, blessed by God to be afforded to be around women who have had training um, and have been a part of different um, workshops and things of that nature to uh, get some more training as a Bible teacher. Then also, too, my husband is in seminary, and so we are always talking through... The things that he's learning, the things that I'm learning, um, and he's just such a great wealth of knowledge. And then also to my local church. Um, my so our lead pastor is um, a seminary, is seminary trained, and then our executive pastor is uh, finishing seminary now. Um, and we, I mean, at our church, we go through a lot of theological um, and doctrinal things that most people probably would only get if they went to a seminary. And so they've taken their seminary training and brought it into our local church, which I think is super awesome. Um, And so lastly, yes, my thoughts on seminary. I think seminary can be such a great tool, help and resource for um, those who have the opportunity to go. I don't believe that it's a requirement for anyone to hold any position of a pastor or elder or a teacher of any sort. But I do believe there needs to be um, a humility that says, I am leading God's people, therefore I need to avail myself to as much as teaching and training that I can so that as I'm going before God's people and explaining these different things, I'm not so proud and puffed up about what I think I know that I end up getting it wrong. Um... I think seminaries can be incredibly helpful. Um, There are trained professionals that have done the work of education um, and they are sharing their knowledge with others. And two, I think also that, um, again, it all depends on your life circumstances and where you are, but if you cannot attend, a seminary and you know for a grade or you don't have the time to do coursework you can be an auditor of courses at a local seminary and what that simply means is that you can pay to take the class but you're not paying um, you're not gonna get a grade for the class it's not like you pass or fail it you're going to um, you can interact with the class you can learn what everyone else is learning and all of those different things but you're just not gonna get a grade or any type of credit for it and then you also have um, seminaries who do certificate, uh, cert- certification programs where you can take a set number of classes, actually pass the test, and they will give you a certificate of training or whatever in this specific area. And so I think that if you have the opportunity to go or even if you have um, it available to you to take a class or two, I think that can be beneficial to anyone. Um, But most specifically, I think that most of our education should be done in our local churches. If we are a part of healthy local churches that are doing things like this, I I would say most of that should be done in a local church. But again, if you have the ability and opportunity to go to seminary, do it. Um, And don't feel like that disqualifies you altogether. If you can't go, again, I highly stress the importance of being humble enough to say, I don't know it all, therefore I need to regularly be receiving training and teaching and being discipled by someone who can um, aid me in whatever ministry the Lord has called me to. So, yep, yeah, that's today's question. Um, and if you have a question you want answered on the show, visit our website, thebiblicallysoundwoman.com. Click the podcast tab and submit a question via the respective link on the page. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode you can keep up with the ministry by checking out our website, thebiblicallysoundwoman.com, following us on social media, signing up for our newsletter, and subscribing to the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If this episode or others have blessed you in any kind of way, please consider leaving a review to let others know how great you think the podcast is and how helpful it has been to you. This helps us get out there and allow people to come across our podcast by the ratings that you all leave. By scripture we live, by scripture we die. This has been your host, Ayanna Mathis. Till next time.